Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 38, Writing a Kindle World Miniseries, an interview with Linda Carol Brad, coming to you on Thursday, March 15th, 2018. As you know from last week, we started talking about Kindle Worlds, what they are, how somebody creates one, and what happens with all these different people writing as part of the same series. So we'll continue the series today by talking to one of the writers in the Montana Sky series, Linda Carol Brad. Here you go with the show. Welcome. Today's guest is Linda Carol Brad. As a child, Linda was often found lying on her bed reading about characters having exciting adventures in places far away. Upon reaching a landmark birthday, she decided to write one of those romances she loved so much. Easier said than done. Perseverance paid out, and 12 years later, she received her first call from a publisher, and a confession story was published. Now Linda writes heartwarming contemporary and historical stories with a touch of humor, and many have a tie to her pre- previous home of Texas. Welcome, Linda. Hi. Hi. Here. I'm so glad that you came on. I think this was a wonderful idea to try to do a little series about how Kinder Worlds works and how it's different for all the different authors. Oh, I'm excited to be part of it, so I'm glad to share what I've learned. Yay, thank you. Well, listen, I thought maybe we'd just start with a little bit of background. You were writing and um, editing before you got started in this Kindle world. So um, give us a little bit of idea of what your writing life, writing career was like before. And then um, how did it happen that you, you know, stumbled upon getting involved? Okay. Um, I'd been writing for uh, a long time before I got published, let's say that, 12 years in my intro. Um, and then after the confession stories, I started publishing short length because that was what I was writing was less than 10,000. And it, about 12 years ago, a small press called the Wild Rose Press opened and they were taking short stories. And so that's where my first publications in ebooks came from was shorter length, meaning five to 15,000, and I have quite a few titles there. Um, And then what happens is wonderful in the author world when you know other authors, and um, three of us were at a convention in Dallas um, and pitched a story to a Kensington um, editor, Hilary Sayers, and we actually, uh, three of us had an appointment separately with her Um, And we went in and pitched different ideas. And she said, well, you know, kind of, you're kind of close. And so the three of us went down, um, missed some of the workshops in the conference so we could come up with a proposal. And at the end of the day, she was doing one of those publisher panels where they talk about their publishing house. We like stole her away at the end and made a proposal of a, a three book, like a trilogy of erotic historical westerns. Um, which we got published. And that was my intro into bigger name publishing. Um, And since then, I've kind of shied away from my erotic writing and stayed with the heartwarming and the sweet. Um, So I have three novellas with Kensington Aphrodisia. um, And then I went on to publish. uh, I focused about the first 10 years of my career on the erotic name, which is Layla Chase. And um, had probably 15 stories, less than 20,000 with them. And then um, the segue into how did I get to the Kindle Worlds was after living in Texas for a dozen years, we moved back to California 
in um, the summer of 2012. And I met Deborah at a Orange County Romance Writers meeting. Um, and she was needing an editor and I was branching my editing that I had been doing quasi professionally for friends, but really just kind of, you know, on a as needed basis. Uh, I formalized my editing business and Deborah was one of my first study clients. And then when wow. the opportunity came up in, uh, in the following year, in 2011, she decided she wanted to do a multi-author anthology for her Sweetwater Springs world for um, a Christmas book. And I was one of the authors oh. invited to be part of that. And that's called Sweetwater Springs Christmas. So there were 11 of us who submitted stories. Um, and Deborah, you know, facilitated the whole process herself because that was pre the invention of Kindle Worlds. Right. Um, and so then when the opportunity for her to create a Kindle World for Sweetwater Springs arose through a contact at Amazon, she went to those authors from Sweetwater Springs Christmas first. Oh. And gave us the opportunity. And so since I've been editing with her stories since 2012 and loving the characters, loving the setting, loving the idea of, using the established world to then set little stories kind of off to the side, um, but involving characters in her world. So, oh, I, I love the idea. And, and I just published my seventh story this week. The, your seventh story set in that world? Set in the Montana Sky Kindle world. Wow. Yes. Okay, now, um, so is, are all seven stories, I was reading in your bio that... Um, your series within the series is called Entertainers of the West, which of course totally appeals to me because I, I love, you know, entertainment, everything. So are all seven stories within that miniseries? Yes, they are. Yeah. Tell us they a little bit about are that. Not all, um, let me tell you how that started. Um, the, the, pro, the hard part about writing in the Montana Sky Kindle world is, um, that there's one city, Sweetwater Springs, that's well-established with lots of people. And, uh, uh, you know, you come into it in medias reus. It's an active, booming city when you arrive in Sweetwater Springs. Um, now, when the Kindle World was established, the, fir the fir first 14 launch stories were set in Morgan's Crossing, which is a two-day wagon ride from Sweetwater Springs. And it's a small mining town that's basically owned by the mayor. He won the gold mine in a poker game <laughs> and set up this town that supports his mine. So there, in the town were all the things needed to support his workers, a company boarding house, a company mercantile, uh, a saloon, um, and some cabins for the miners to live in, but there wasn't anything for the visitor. So anybody coming to Morgan's Crossing needed to be staying with relatives or they needed to bring their own housing. And so when you're plotting a story, you go, hmm, that's kind of a limiting factor. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't want my people to be sleeping in tents. And so that's when I started researching. Uh, and I researched a vaudeville troupe and a va traveling vaudeville troupe would come in wagons that they live in and they would have all their supplies and they would be kind of, if you think about, kind of like a traveling circus, but right. a group of performers 
who would come into a town and then just need some open field to park their wagons where they live. They cook on campfire um, and then they had their own place to stay. So wow. I started the series with the first book. Then I had to research vaudeville troops, what kind of acts were in them. Um, so that involved um, comedians, jugglers, uh, performers, dancers, musicians, because there was always the, in vaudeville, there's always the array of slapstick to opera singers and oh. anything in between. And this is true. This happened after the Civil War. There was a lot of vaudeville troops that traveled around the country to bring entertainment to small towns. Huh. They often wintered in um, major cities so that they would not have to be living out in the elements, but they would have, um, say, a home base. And in this one, it was, there were lots of home bases in Denver. In this one, it was mm -hmm. Omaha. So that's where they wintered over, think of it that way. And they would then be performing in a theater setting. And then when the weather got good and they could travel, they would be out in their wagons going west. Because wow. Frontier was where people were moving to, but also there was no entertainment established in the small towns. Right. So that was my setup. I, I came up with a vaudeville troupe. I had them arrive in Morgan's Crossing, and then I had to have something that caused the upset. And they got stranded there by their manager who just cut and run and took them. Oh. So then they were stuck with, okay, we're here, but we have no way to, I mean, he took all their money. Uh, they had their savings, but he took their, their salary, took um, the money that had been, um, was going to be used to rent the hall and everything else. So they were stuck and they basically had to, then it was like back to the Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland, let's put on a show. Yeah. So then they had to figure out how to put on their own show and they didn't have any experience with the organization. So it was a really fun book to write. Yeah. The hard part was there were so many characters and performers that I had to keep track of all of what they were doing and their contribution to the actual performances, as well as layer in the romance. But the right. thing that it gave me was my, my first three heroines, because I had a pair of sisters, Cynia and Nola, um, and then their best friend, Dory. So those are the heroines of the first three books. Nice. Um, and the first one focused on the vaudeville show and the troupe and how it ran. Um, I did a lot of research to see what kind of sets they would have, what kind of, um, they had, there was a dog act, so they had two little dogs. Um, let's see. And then, you know, comedians was like, come up with the lamest jokes ever that this guy could be telling because you think about is. This is set in um, 1886, uh -huh. so humor was really different, and um, I didn't do anything body or risque, but it was just, you know, what we would consider lame jokes. Yeah. And the guy made his living that way. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Does he end up being one of the heroes in one of the other books? Not yet. I have not, um, at the end, uh, in the middle of um, Laced by Love, that's the first one, the majority of the truth makes the decision that, well, the premise of the book is 
it's two sisters who are orphaned and that this is their life is to travel in, in the vaudeville troupe. When they get to this small mining town, one sister puts her foot down and says, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm staying here. Wow. I'm going to make a life for myself. And the other sister was the one who kind of drug her along and saying, well, what do you mean? We have this we're going to do. And, and she wants the second sister, Nola, wants to try out for um, William Cody's Wild West show. Ah. And so she has aspirations out of the area and needed to get more experience. So she's flabbergasted that her sister wants to stay and open up a seamstress shop. Um, so that caused a rift between the sisters, but it also gave the heroine a reason to stay. And there's just this handsome leather worker who's right there. And um, I had to give him a reason for being in this small mining town. And he's actually living under an alias because he's a member of a um, Russian family that has a tanning secret for tanning leather yeah. that um, others are trying to steal. And so the brothers have, three brothers have been sent out into various locations um, until the father can get the method patent. Uh Um, And so they have been living incognito or under an alias for a couple years. And so he, he tries real hard not to make any associations, but you know, love will out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. What fun. It was, it was so much fun to research and, and write. And I do intend on bringing at least some of the uh, vaudevillians back. Mm -hmm. But the other point is, okay, what's their reason for coming back to this little town? This little town has less than 100 people. And so it's very, very small. Um, But, and I balance in my stories, I balance people that become permanent residents and people that are just passing through um, and then end up somewhere else. so the first four books had people, first three books had people staying. No, that's not true. The second book had um, the heroine going, uh, earning money by helping an injured rancher take, transport his Mustangs back to the family um, ranch in northern Montana. And wow. she knew she could handle that. So that was kind of a road trip story, which was yeah. fun to write. Um, I like challenging myself. And so the first one was a huge cast, which I hadn't done before. And the second one was a road trip story. Um, and the third one was basically the heroine um, was the friend, Dory, who stayed behind because she kind of liked the idea of making a new life, but then she didn't really know what she could possibly do. Yeah. Was, <clears throat> excuse me. She'd been the... Um, assistant to the dog trainer and just kind of the helper throughout the troop. So she kept thinking her skills were too limited to offer much. Yeah. And then she came up with the idea of putting on monthly community dances. And so I had great fun with that one because she starts out with um, like six wax cylinders on an old like Victrola. Yeah. And then people get bored with those six songs. So she has to try to find each dance, and they went from May until September, she improved how she presented them information. She improved the decorations. She improved the music. She improved everything. So that was fun to figure out, okay, from total disaster, the first one, to very successful, how am I going to arc these community dances? Yeah. Um, which All was within one book, right? All within one book. And that one actually is a novella, so it's about 30,000. 
um, words. But um, the fun part is always the dynamics between the, um, the characters. And the one tip I can have for people thinking that they're going to write a series, make sure that the characters have lots of siblings. <laughs> right. Because with the first book, it was two sisters, orphans. They had nothing else to draw from. So I made sure that I gave Dory lots of siblings back on the farm, back in Indiana, um, which I can bring in later. Yeah. Um, and with the first hero, he had two brothers and two sisters. And we've seen both of the brothers uh, appear in stories. Um, and so that was cool because I had to figure out a way of making one of the partners in that couple an entertainer. Right. And each time, of course, I'm not going to, I don't want to repeat myself. Yeah. So I need to come up with new things. And by the time I was in, by the time I hit book six, I said, okay, all of my entertainers have been females. So uh, in the first book, she was a dramatist. She put on costumes and did um, performances of things like Ode to a Grecian Urn or um, Hiawatha. Uh, so, and then the second one, she was a dog trainer and she had to work on, she had to do those skills in a saloon to, <laughs> to fix the wagon that was broken that they had to drive to Northern Montana. And the third one, it was Dory putting on the dances. The fourth one was um, a healer who worked in an orphanage and um, she was in charge of the children's choir. And then yeah. the orphanage burned down <gasps> and she had to take the surviving children to a sister orphanage in Southern Montana. So it was kind of a road trip one too. Yeah. She meets up with the, the third um, Andrusha brother who was an ex-trapper and currently a bounty hunter. So, wow. um, and then the fifth one was an injured ballerina from uh, Helena Theater that she was performing in. She injured her foot, couldn't, you know, lost her job, yeah. uh, then lost her housing. And luckily, she had a cousin who lived near Morgan's Crossing. <laughs> she went to the cousin's ranch to heal and met up with um, a horse breeder who um, taught her how to be a bareback rider. And oh. she made it to New York to the Wild West show. Wow. Um, and then the next story, I finally said, okay, five stories, all centered with a female entertainer. I have to come up with a male entertainer. And so I researched um, what, would be, uh, it, what would be entertaining and what would uh, a man as, a, as an entertainer do in the theater? And I, I thought about bringing back some of my guys from the original vaudeville troupe. And then I said, no, don't want to do that. And I came upon research that told me there was a famous fight that was attended by 1,000 people in Leadville, Colorado. Wow. And it was prize fighters. And there was a whole list of all of these men competing for the title of prize fighter. And it happened in December of, 2000, of 1886, actually Christmas Eve. So that fit perfectly with my storyline. So the hero of my sixth story is an ex- bare knuckle boxer who uh, became a prize fighter. Wow. So that was really different to research that world. But I did in that case, take the liberty of using real life names of the real life boxers that were there wow. and 
this is the time where you go, oh my gosh, Wikipedia is so fantastic. <laughs> Wikipedia had a list of these boxers' careers, who they, fighted, where, who they fought against, when they fought, the dates, the locations. So I, and there was um, a group of boxers that got on a train and would go from city to city putting on prize fights. And wow. they would basically be boxing against the same people. And so sometime one guy would win and sometime the other guy would win. But um, it was a very popular entertainment piece for the times. Huh. So I used that as my, um, my boxer trying to get back on top after yeah. being a champion several years in the past. And then his, his career is sliding a little bit. Wow. It sounds like in most of the books, you actually have to research at least two different careers. Is that right? Uh, true. Because wow. uh, in the boxer one, then the heroine was somebody who'd worked with her father, who's a doctor. And mm -hmm. so she was a nurse, but she wanted to enter medical school. And medical school was very hard for women to get into in the times. Yeah. And her father didn't, wasn't going to pay for her to do that. So she had to figure out another way to get there. Um. But yeah, you, uh, you have to figure out, and, and I always want my people to be different than the teacher. Um, and I have written a couple of teachers in other series, mm -hmm. but as soon as, um, the problem with that is there were laws against women courting or women even being married and being teachers. Wow. So therefore, that's kind of hard in a romance. Yeah. So I've had to have the women prove themselves as teachers and then get the town to agree that it's okay that they're married. Interesting. Yeah. And, and you, you, you just even can't imagine. They, they can't even be in an ice cream parlor in some, some areas just because it wasn't uh, seen as wholesome enough. Wow. Um, so, and then my last story involves a, um, I went back to woman being the entertainer and she's a sharpshooter. Cool. And earns money in sharpshooting contests to help pay for her father's gambling debt. <gasps> then they have to go on the run because a, uh, the person who holds the debt that her father owes um, wants her hand in marriage instead of the money. Oh. And she has no interest in that. So she goes on the run and disguises a boy. So <laughs> that was real fun to write too. Wow. And in that case, I had the rancher who lived outside of Morgan's Crossing and that's the hero for that story. Oh, okay. So I always try to figure out a way to utilize the people that are already there. Yeah. Um, and in writing in the series, getting back to writing in the Kindle world, um, the, everybody has their own plots and what they want to do and where they want to go with them. But what we do as authors in the group um, and Deborah has created a closed Facebook group where we can talk about our stories. And in the case of when I was writing the third story, Dance Toward the Light, I, I just announced to people, okay, my next story is going to involve dances that are held from these months to these months. And if you want your people to come, they're always held on the second Saturday. Let me know if your people are coming and I'll mention them in my book. And you mention the dance in your book. And that's how a little bit of cross collaboration happens, which ah. leads you know, it's, we can cross promote each other's stories. Um, and that happened. Lou, Lou Nelson had her people attend the vaudeville performance and I had my 
a heroine from the stage notice when they had to leave suddenly because somebody had taken ill. And there was a, a character who was a doctor, but, and privately treating people, but not letting his identity be known because of his own uh, backstory. So those are the fun things to do when you're writing in the world is have characters cross, cross into other people's stories. Yeah. And we always use the stock characters. I mean, they're stock, stock characters in the town, the saloon owner, the, the cook at the boarding house for the miners, you know, the mayor who owns the mine, his wife, um, and who else is a stock character? People who run the mercantile. Some of the townspeople have their own talents. They make soap, they, they provide the milk and butter to the mercantile. So you have your characters interacting with them. Gives the flavor of the town being ongoing. Yeah. It isn't just your people drop in, you drop a few names and then they leave. Some people do that. Um, <clears throat> other people, they become permanent residents. And then, then that place, like the shop front for the leather worker, when he built it, he built a second shop because he was going to rent it out. And that's where my seamstress ended up. Okay. And so if he's building his own shop, he has to have living quarters. So I had to figure out, you know, I'm drawing all of this on a piece of paper so I know where it is. Yeah. He has to have living quarters to the back because most people who own businesses in the 1800s lived above their business. Right. You know, it's like same thing in big cities. When they moved out to the frontier, they had to have a place to live. They lived near their place of business. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and then when people stay, then the town grows. Now that town has a saddlery. They have a seamstress. There's blacksmith. There's hotel owner. Um, and so you have your people interact with those people. And it's, it really makes for a good connection. Wow. So how are you guys keeping up with what else is going on? I mean, everybody, it's not, I'm totally guessing here. So this is really a question, but if you have sort of a calendar of, I'm starting my first story in July of 1896, and then this happens and this happens and these different stories are happening, you know, along a path of time and somebody else is starting their series of stories, or maybe maybe not everybody's writing a series, a mini series of stories, but are you guys just staying in touch in the Facebook group and then just sort of um, coming up with a brainstorm of an idea? Oh, okay, well, I'll add your character here and then you add my character there. Or are you needing to read each other's books? I know Deborah said something about there's a Bible available that has a lot of the information. Right. Can you tell us more? Every time... <clears throat> We, um, with the first launch of the 14 books, when we were doing just the messaging back and forth on Facebook, um, it became evident that there might be duplicate names of characters. All right. So we said, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. Let's start, you know, and we started a Word document that listed the characters' names and, um, and that we didn't want to duplicate on professions. So it was character names, professions, a little bit of physical description, just basic, you know, tall, short, pudgy, thin, dark hair, light hair, colored eyes. And then we said, do they stay in Morgan's Crossing or Sweetwater Springs or do they leave? Mm -hmm. So that let, and where, what is the duration of the story? So with that single word document, we're able to go back, that is on a 
Facebook group, you can share documents. We're yeah. able to go back and say, okay, what were all the names of the characters? Okay, I don't want to use that. Um, what were the professions? Um, and then you get a sense of, you can talk about if something happened, like um, this is a very peaceful town and there's rarely any, any arguments, violence, whatever. Yeah. But if an event happens, um, in fact, there, there was a, a uh, there was a Pinkerton in the town asking about a missing young woman. Wow. And so other people would, would notice that was in August of 1886 because my friend wrote that book. Um, and so we made sure that her heroine, who was a time traveling violinist, um, appeared at the dance and gave a performance. And so I had to collaborate with Janet Wellington on, okay, what is she wearing? What does she look like? Um, what kind of music does she play? And um, so her performance is in my book. Um, in her book, she met my heroine and, you know, was introduced to. And so you end up with some shared scenes, which obviously adds to your word count, but <laughs> yeah. it also adds to the integrity of the link stories. Um, Interesting. Yes, we have a, a Word document that has all of that information so that people can go back and refer and not duplicate. Yeah. There are a gazillion ranches. I have no idea how there's enough land for these ranches that are just an hour outside of Morgan's Crossing. Right, right. And well, use, yeah. And they use I, Morgan's Crossing to buy their supplies or for the yeah. that, that's That's what I hear. Um, uh, historical romance writers who write in like, you know, Regency or, you know, some sort of English kind of time period. They're like, yeah, there are more Dukes that could ever possibly have land exactly. in England. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because there just isn't enough land for them to own land, which makes them a Duke. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, you know, Montana is pretty big. And yeah. um, we think, and most of the land grants were um, 160 acres, which really isn't that big. Yeah. Um, and, for some of us up there, uh, Lou did this and I did this. Uh, they bought land for a ranch and then you could buy an adjoining plot that was a timber track. And as long as you kept the, the trees on it, then you'd have 320 acres. Interesting. <clears throat> wow. What a lot of research, but it does sound really fun. It is fun. Um, and the hard part is finding the new profession um, or even taking, and I always liked for my individual characters to have some kind of interesting hobby or something that they do because people don't just do their work. They go yeah. home and do something else. Yeah. Um, so either people are reading, and so I've researched what the popular novels were for, you know, the second half of the 1800s, um, or they, you know, one of the... Um, Andrusha Brothers, um, in the third book, when he came down, he had been doing his trapping. Um, two of the brothers were trappers, and so they supplied the skins, mailed them to the guy who lived in Morgan's Crossing, and he tanned the hides for the leather business that the father owns the storefront in San Francisco. Right. So I had to get that whole chain of how this all works. Wow. Um, and I came upon a really interesting story about that Russian leather was always special because there was a secret tanning method that kept it supple. And there had been a, um, a cache of Russian leather hides 
that went down in the sinking of a ship in the uh, 1870s um, that was brought up 100 years later. And when in the, eight, the 1970s, when I think it was off of Sweden, actually, or Denmark, um, wow. when it was actually brought up to the surface and opened, it still had the special aroma of the hides. Wow. Because it had, when it sunk with the ship, it got, you know, like mud encrusted on the bottom. And so there was a shell. And when they cracked it, they, the scent was still there. And it's a, I haven't, and it was a scent that um, corporate spies were sent into to work in the Russian tanneries to try to steal the secret. Oh. So that's why I gave the Andrushas this, this secret thing that they had to protect. And that's why the brothers were all sent out in three different directions to until the, they got the patent done. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that discovering facts like that, that you could then go, okay, I can see how that can drive my plot and give yeah. the, give Nikolai a reason to be in hiding for two years and to uh, be living under a fake name. Yeah. And, uh, so then at the, at the end of Lace by Love, when my characters got married, um, and then when they, then the bad guys, the anonymous bad guys, uh, finally located where he was um, and came after him, he had to reveal his real name. And then they realized they really weren't married because he had a fake name. Ah. He had to go and get married again. Um, <laughs> but there was just a minor thing because as I was writing, I was going, you know what? You, if, you're, if you don't use the right name, it's not valid. So it, even back then, it wouldn't have been. Ah. So, um, that was fun. But if I, have, if I can add another tip about writing in a series, yeah. which I didn't know I was doing when I wrote the first one. Oh, okay. But um, encouraged by other people in the group, they said, well, you have 11 characters in this troupe. Why would you not want to write another story? And I went, yeah, you're right. But the one thing that you have to think about if you think you might possibly be writing a story is make sure the ending of one book leaves a loose thread for the, the next book. Because in the first book, um, I had my two sisters and they had to travel the two days of Sweetwater Springs to get married. One was a marriage of convenience so she could travel with the guy taking his Mustangs back to his ranch. And the other was the true love match between the seamstress and the leather worker. And because I wanted to show my heroine dealing with the ramifications of her decision to stand pat and not move, um, I had her waving goodbye to her sister as her sister disappears north over a hill. Then when I started plotting book two, I said, oh no, those people aren't even in Sweetwater Springs. <laughs> They're on their way to Northern Montana. How can I make this uh, a Kindle World story? Yeah. And of course, uh, a good friend uh, told me, well, just go back to the last time the sisters were together and write it from the second sister's POV. And of course, back then they were in a wagon, wagon broke down. They had to turn around and come back to Sweetwater Springs. So that got me back into the world that I needed to be in. Oh, good. And, but I, I wish I had been more foresightful and not written that ending. Yeah, yeah. I could have stopped it sooner where they weren't already gone or something. Um, but that was really minor. It, it was just one of those, hmm, gonna think about this better. 
Yeah. By the time I got to the third book, I started making genealogy family trees. Oh, yeah. To figure out how people were related. Yeah. Um, because when I wanted to bring in, in the sixth book, the hero is a cousin, long lost cousin, that they only remember meeting once as kids to the Andrusha brothers. And so um, I actually had to write a family tree going, okay, if he's got the last name of Andrusha, then it has to be a brother. Right. Yeah, you know, and luckily I know I've done enough genealogy that it wasn't a problem, but it was to sit down and figure out, oh yeah, and how would they have crossed paths? And his father, that hero's father was a black sheep of the family, so it kind of explained things. But um, I recommend that. If you think you're writing a series, create a family tree. Yeah. So you, and then it helps me because now I have, um, when people, when the story frames were, beginning and end of the story action, as well as when those people got married. Right. That becomes a point later on. And then you have to start tracking pregnancies. And <laughs> yeah. writing in, in 1887 because I don't want to get to the my the heroine of the first book is pregnant through all these other books i haven't yet gotten into the next year but the other thing that we discovered when um when deborah set up the parameters for the world she set it up it was going to happen in sometime in the fall in 1886 well when we started doing research we realized that there was something called the great blizzard of 1886 oh that went from october until february so yikes we had to set our stories before and then any story set after in the spring, everybody had to mention the stink of the carcasses that were rotting on the prairie because yeah. that was reality. Yeah. And so um, we didn't realize until we started researching how severe that blizzard had been, but wow. to not mention it would have been, we would not be good historical writers if we didn't mention such a major event. Yeah. We have to deal with the ramifications of it. <coughs> wow. Well, that just kind of skewed the time frame. Some people said, oh, I don't want to, and nobody wanted to write the actual blizzard. Right. But, I mean, especially because to write it really accurately, you'd have to decide how many of the cousins and sisters were going to die. <laughs> exactly. Or how many people, you know, are going to be sick from being starved or, yeah. You know, it was just not what's considered in the romance world as being, I, I have actually edited a story where somebody wrote through that, that blizzard and um, it, was, it was a tough story. Yeah. Because she had, to, she had to incorporate all of those things and it was, um, and she even admitted it was a much darker story than she intended to write because you had to be real. Yeah. You know, people didn't have enough food. Yeah. They didn't have enough fuel. They had to, uh, and there was a, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but Laura Ingalls Wilder dealt with one of the big blizzards. Right. And they lived in just one of the rooms of the house and they had to twist hay for their fuel and their hands were bleeding and whatnot. And um, it didn't sound romancy. So we all avoided that blizzard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because then you, you end up with genre, genre expectations not being met and the, the book actually becoming something else like just historical fiction or. Exactly. Yeah. And that, and that's hard, a hard balance to uh, make is yeah. how much history do you want in the story? Right. Um, 
And also you have to know um, what was available. You can't write a story in the gold rush times of um, 1849 and 1850 and include products that were invented in the 1860s. Right. <laughs> so, so you, you don't think about some of the things that we take for granted all the time, but um, actual toilet paper, I mean, specific paper for the purpose of using it yeah. wasn't invented until the 18, early 1880s. So before that, people used, and you think, oh, well, they used the Sears catalog. Well, guess what? Sears catalog didn't come out until the 1890s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, there's a lot of making sure that what you're including, like the Victrola or when I was doing the, the music, um, what kind of playing instruments would a vaudeville troupe have? Right. Um, what instruments were portable? And in case there were, there were two sisters who had to lug around cellos. Um, wow. But they, you know, they were in a wagon. And so that wasn't so hard. But there was a dance troupe and to figure out what kind of music that you could have so these dancers could be performing on stage. Um, so, yeah, it's, and, you know, something like the clothes hanger what you think has been around forever, but guess what? It hasn't. Yeah. <laughs> or even uh, for the seamstress, even wire mannequins um, or adjustable mannequins. Yeah. Um, you know, so every, every trade, every profession you give somebody, you have to make sure that the implements that you think should be involved with that. Like the sewing machine wasn't invented until the 1860s, but it was, it was cost a lot of money for quite a while. So it would not be reasonable for a seamstress who's just yet setting up her shop to have access to a brand new, new machine. So I had right. to give my seamstress the older type machines that had been available, just a simple lock stitch machine, not even a treadle machine. Um, so yeah, you just have to, when you get in the world though, you're there and you make everything real. And it's, and that's the fun part for me that nice. I've always loved history. And so I make sure that my stuff is really historically accurate. Um, now, some yeah. of our listeners may be, you know, so interested in the Montana Sky Series just because we've been talking about it, but others will probably be thinking, oh, I want to look at the list of the other worlds because, you know, maybe I write sci-fi or something else. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. Um, so in a general sense, do you have any thoughts on uh, advice for when you're writing in someone else's world? Um, what I've noticed when I've looked through the other worlds, um, and there are a lot, but I think at the last count there were 52. Um, and the majority of them are contemporary. Um, there are some that are specific sci-fi. There's some that are horror. Um, that on the page describing what the Kindle world is, there mm -hmm. often are references to what is considered the canon or the story Bibles. Oh, good. Um, for it. So, you know, the, the owner of the world may say, um, to get a sense of what this world is like, you really should read. And they list, they only list a couple. They don't list like all of their titles. Yeah. Because um, most of the authors had several titles set in their own world before Amazon approached them and said, would you like to ex open this up? Right. And so they have a, they give you a sense of um, what the world is like and who's in it and where it is. And, and the other thing is, is that the vast majority are in fictional places, but oftentimes the author had a real place in mind when they oh. set that in the fictional world. 
So they can kind of say, um, in Debris, it said, where the prairie meets the mountains. For some of us, that's a little hard because yeah. I like specificity. But yeah. we roll with it. Um, other people say, yeah, this is, my, you know, my town's called uh, Bluff Valley, but it's really set in Grass Valley, California. And then you can go and research Grass Valley, California. Right. And just sense of the population size, what the terrain is like. Um, and that's when I use Google Earth. Yeah. Because if I know that I'm writing in a certain world and I want to say, okay, here I'm sitting and I live in the Southern California mountains. So I look out and I see pine trees and I see, you know, rocky hills. But if what is being where I'm writing is the Montana prairie, that's very different. I've never lived in a prairie. Yeah. Um, closest I came to is going to college in Chico and living among rice paddies. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's what Google Earth is good for. You just put in the, an area of Montana that has, and it gives you like a street view and you can see. Is right. it really, really flat like Texas where it's totally flat? Yeah. Or is it, you know, gently rolling? And that gives you a sense of, okay, now I can picture where I am and I can write this. And then yeah. you research what trees grow there and you research what time of the year the wildflowers bloom. And I needed that for Dance Toward the Light because every month she decorated with whatever wildflowers were blooming that month. Right. And there's wonderful websites from the extension centers of the states that tell you that. Interesting. You go, yeah, I did that in Texas too. When I was writing um, all my stories set in Texas, go to Ag Extension and they have, or the co local college extension, and they have people who that's their job. So <laughs> research the, the uh, wildflowers, when they bloom, what the blooms look like, what type of they are, and it's way more information than you need, but you have a picture and you have a description. And so that's awesome. It was. And I, I had different flowers at every single one of those dances because that was the only thing she could afford was to go out and pick the wildflowers to make the decoration. Right. So, oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it, it, I, when I was first starting to write, none of this was available. And so um, one of my resources way back then was the tour book for the state put out by the AAA. All right. Because they would have like a little brief nutshell history of that area. And I got a whole plot for a story on one little one set in Kansas when Swedish immigrants came to Kansas in a certain area and established a town. Interesting. Um, that book isn't finished yet, but it's on my list for this year. Yeah. But yeah. Um, you know, I find it, or my husband and I loved going to, to museums when we lived in, well, we love it all the time, but we made sure we went to a lot in Texas because Texas was so different. We're both native Californians. And so the ranching, the wild frontier, the history of the Alamo, all of that was so different for us. And we took every opportunity to hit up, um, a museum when we were traveling. Yeah. Wow. This is really helpful, Linda. Thank you so much. I have a couple of other tips. Okay. Um, let me see. No, I think I worked them all in. I was okay. about, um, oh, well, the one of the things that I wanted to, to hit on was um, if people didn't, weren't aware of William Cody and his persona as Buffalo Bill, mm -hmm. um, he was part of the national zeitgeist. People knew about him from the 1870s when he was a frontier scout for the army and when he hosted hunting trips for 
European nobility. Oh, right. Um, into then in the, uh, and he acted on stage as his persona. Um, like in Chicago, they put on a performance that had him, you know, acting out at, in his buckskins and his guns. Um, he was panned as a horrible actor, but <laughs> it was almost so bad that it was funny. Oh. What people said in their reviews of him. But a decade later, he opened in um, 1883, he opened his Wild West show, which was a, a group of people doing um, trick riding, as well as sharpshooting, as well as acted out scripted little skits yeah. about settling the American frontier. There was one where they actually had a, brought a, a house, and he did these mostly in fairgrounds arenas. Mm -hmm. um, so they could bring in a small log cabin that they would put a woman in, a woman settler in, and then they'd bring in the Indians and they'd catch it on fire and rescue her. Wow. Um, and so he just kept thinking big, big, big. But he was part of the national awareness from um, 72, 1872 till 1916 with his last show. Wow. So his Wild West show ran from 1883 to 1916. Wow. And, for um, many of those years, Annie Oakley, as little Miss Shershot, was part of it. Yeah. Um, he traveled to Europe and put on performances for the Queen. So wow. if anybody, um, it's just one of those things that was always there. It was called America's National Entertainment. He rented Madison Square Gardens and put on performances there. Wow. And Madison Square Gardens was, the, was built then. And um, so... And people, I mean, he would, you like, think about it, he had an orchestra, he had all of the performers, all of the animals, he had, um, the year that he hired uh, Annie Oakley in 85, he spent $7,000 on posters and, and flyers to put out for advertisement ahead of, they would have people that would go to a town and put up the, the flyers yeah. when the, the show was coming the, within the next couple of days. Um, they had people who painted the murals for inside the arenas. So wow. there's a whole lot of um, support that he was paying for, and he always paid on time. And there was only one time when he was traveling down the Mississippi River, and the riverboat sunk with all of his gear. And he wired back to his partner in Omaha and said, you know, the season's lost. And the, the guy said, you're booked get down there and buy new stuff. He said, well, you can't, you know, wreck this. It was early on in their years. They couldn't. Yeah. Wreck. So he was, I read two biographies of his. He's a fascinating, fascinating man. Wow. So that's another thing is that if you want to include real historical events in your stories, because your stories don't happen in a vacuum. Right. You have to look at, you can even go to like timeline on, on Wikipedia and say, what was happening in 1885? Because yeah there will be things internationally as well as nationally that you may want to include. It could just right. be a throwaway newspaper article, but if it says, if you're writing in, um, you know, jumping, if you're writing in, in 1895 uh, or no four, and you don't mention the world's first world's fair, then you're missing out. Yeah. Because it was a world event that people would be talking about. Yeah. So it, I could go on. Yeah. <laughs> I could go on because I love the historical part of, of interweaving that in the stories. Yeah. 
Well, this is great. Now tell people where can they find your books, which will sound very interesting and you and um, anything else that you want to tell us. Um, yeah. Where can people find you in your books? Um, well, all my books are on Amazon and um, are they exclusive to Amazon? All of the Kindle world stories are, and they will okay. always, they will never go wide. Mm-hmm. Um, several of my stories, I'm a hybrid author. So I have some of my stories printed through small presses like the Wild Rose Press and um, Decadent Publishing and Roan Publishing, as well as um, I still have one at Kensington, but they're all available on Amazon. And um, my website, which needs updating, but is there. (laughs) Yeah. W. Linda Carroll, C-A-R-R-O-L-L hyphen Brad, B-R-A-D-D dot com. And um, I have a blog that is HTTP colon backslash backslash blog dot Linda Carol Brad dot com with the hyphen. I have a Facebook page. You can just look up my name. Um, Same with Goodreads, Amazon page. I have a BookBub page. Um, I'm on Twitter at at L Carol Brad with no hyphen. Okay. Um, And I have... Um, I have this series. I have another historical series that's not part of the Kindle Worlds. It's called Sweetwater, uh, Sweethearts of Jubilee Springs. Um, so I've done collaboration there. And I have my own series called Dorado, Texas that now has seven stories in it. Wow. So I've done several multi-author collaborations and I really enjoy them. Um, but I also like writing my own world because I have total control. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Awesome. Well, this is great. Now, also, one other thing uh, people always are asking me about, you know, where can I find a good editor? You're an editor. um, And are you taking new clients? I do take new clients. Um, I own a company called Luster Editing, L-U-S-T-R-E editing.com. I started out only doing romance back in 2012. And then somebody would come up to me and say, well, what would you think about this? And, you know, it was a, the fictionalized version of somebody's life as a, an investigator. And I said, it's a story. Sure, I can do that. So I've done <laughs> place procedurals. I've done memoirs, um, romances, romantic suspense. I've done, um, I even started with a, a, a woman who English was not her first language. And, oh. But she was trying to write her struggles of being the wife of an immigrant and having, she was writing a book about her own story where she came over from Israel. And then as soon as she got here, she couldn't work. Right. And all of the things that she did, and she'd had an active career in Israel. And so in order to honor her husband's uh, fellowship at a, a very prestigious hospital, then, um, you know, so it was, Fiction, what I call it narrative nonfiction. Yeah. She was basically telling her story, but she was relating it in a, um, she was telling her life story, but she was relating it in a fictionalized way with, you know, hooks at the end of chapters where, oh, da-dum-dum, that happened wrong. So um, that was really a very rewarding collaboration because, like I said, English wasn't her first language, although she had several degrees. And it just helped because I, she had some of the idioms wrong. Right. And idioms are really, really hard to get yeah. right in, a, in another language. Yeah. Um, and so you do need a native speaker to help you with that. But we take on clients. Um, my daughter works with me in the company. And oh. we um, have, 
have done the, the span. Maybe we've even done some science fiction, which she would love more of because that's what she writes. Okay. So, um, yes, you can find Wonderful. me on, on the internet and um, contact me through my website. There's a contact page there. Excellent. Great. Well, listen, thank you so much for talking about Kindle Worlds with us. And I may uh, ask you to come back on later and um, give us some more advice from an editor's perspective. Oh, that would be interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, Great. let's plan on it. You know, and the other thing is, is that it'll probably be when I'm in Sweden and you're in California. So <laughs> that can be an even time more... difference might be interesting. That's, that's right. Okay. I'm an idol. So... Oh, that works out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks a lot, Linda. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun.